the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red blood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans, from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the CU at the Game website and your host for the CU at the Game podcast. Well, another November game, another lopsided loss. I am joined for this podcast by Brad Geiger and Neil Langland, and we'll give you a mercifully quick recap of the 54-7 loss to number 15, Washington. CU's defense surrendered three touchdowns on Washington's first three drives, and the Huskies never looked back, sending the reeling buffs to their 10th loss of the season. On the brighter side, Brad and I have a report from ESPN Game Day's trip to Bozeman, Montana. The iconic show was in town for the 121st Brawl of the Wild, with number three Montana State dominating number 12 Montana, 55 to 21. It was cold, it was fun, and it was an experience Buff fans have been longing for since ESPN's last visit to Boulder back in 1996. There's also a discussion about recent quotes from CU Chancellor Phil DiStefano and whether there will finally be some movement on transfer policies at CU. Spoiler alert, don't hold your breath. We will also, of course, bring you our tips for the upcoming season finale against number 14, Utah. It will be senior day, but the Buffs are once again heavy underdogs, with Las Vegas pegging the Utes as almost 30-point favorites. So, can the Buff defense be proud of the fact that they held the nation's leading passer, Washington's Michael Penix Jr., to his lowest output of the season? What was it like hanging out in single-digit temperatures, watching Sir Nick Faldo and ESPN's Lee Corso pick the Bobcats to take down the Grizzlies? Is there any hope for change, or at least the conversation about change, of CU's transfer policies? And do the Buffs have a chance to hold back the Utah offense, the seventh top 25 offense the Buffs have faced this season? Let's find out. Okay, and we're back. Joined by recently repatriated Brad Geiger from Highlands Ranch. Brad, how, how's it going there? Doing well. Uh, thought out for my time in Bozeman, uh, where I had warm heart and often cold hands. <laughs> and uh, Neil, I'm glad it's almost ski season, or it already is ski season. Mr. Langland, how are you doing in downtown Denver? Uh, doing fine. I just came back from my fourth day on the slope today. Enjoyed it. Good weather, sun, no wind, no big crowds, and some pretty nice snow. And it was 60 miles from Boulder, but in terms of emotional distance, it was a light year. 
I didn't think about CU football once during that time. Well, so now that I'm here to do that, I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, I have to say that uh, our Saturday was pretty CU free for the most part and tend to probably agree that it was uh, a little more enjoyable, but uh, we can quickly do a post-mortem on the Washington game. Colorado ventured up to Seattle without a win. And uh, of course, the CU has won a game in Seattle since 1989. It was 2004 when the Washington game, Washington State game, I should say, which was the 9-11 game that got canceled. They Rescheduled it, played in the Seattle Seahawks Stadium in 2004, and the Buffs won that game. So, CU does have a victory in Seattle since 1989, just not against the Huskies. But 54 to 7 was the final. And if anything, it wasn't that close uh, with CU scoring on one 69 yard pass. And pretty much that was the offense for the day. 575 yards of total offense to a grand total of 202 for the Buffs. Neil, I'll, I'll start with you. Did you have anything to say about the uh, Colorado game against the uh, Washington Huskies? Anything positive, negative, or even neutral at this point? Well, if we were being analytical and picking the game apart, we could spend hours on what CU didn't. Uh, do and what Washington did do um, with apologies to Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. I think if I were writing an article, it would be victory less in Seattle and or clueless in Seattle, not to be too snarky about it. But what impressed me the most without getting too specific is the ease with which Washington uh, dispatched the buffs, both on offense, defense, and special teams as well. When UW was running the ball, they got chunks six, eight, ten yards at a time. Many times they averaged, I think, over six for the game per carry. And they took their foot off the gas before the third quarter was over. On the other hand, again, kudos to the coaching staff and to the players for their effort and heart they continue to display um, the one lapse was the period just before halftime when they gave up 12 points in I don't know 100 seconds maybe it was it was awful and they showed signs of coming apart at the seams at that point where they were just completely disorganized and awful to their credit they came back in the third quarter and actually scored on a nice play with their quarterback showing some grit, coming back on the field after an injury, throwing a dime, uh, receiver was wide open. CU had some plays on offense where they were running the ball, getting good yardage. Our senior running back did a fine job, I think. Special teams was a complete disaster. I, I don't know how to put it any other way. The punts were short and flat. Uh, there's no way that any team can cover those kinds of punts, and we did not. You know, we, as I mentioned, uh, toward the end of the second quarter, we didn't field a ground ball and had a disastrous uh, return. And I, I just, uh, 
despite their efforts, they looked like they digressed overall that game. And I've already said too much, so I'll I'll cut it off there. Okay. Well, Brad, the uh, the Buffs did uh, manage to keep the nation's leading passer, Michael Penix Jr., to held him to 229 yards passing and touchdown, his lowest output of the year, <laughs> which uh, might be aging about as well as the fact that C was only behind TCU 7-6 at halftime in the opener. Yeah. Um, of course, then you have to offset the fact that they had 280 yards worth of rushing against the Buffs. JT Shrout, 6 of 18, 120 yards with, again, 69 of those coming on one play. One touchdown, one interception. So are we uh, just going to take from this game that we held Michael Penix to 229 yards passing and pretty much that's it, we're, we're done? Well, I mean, there's, there's nothing to take from this game. It, it, you could argue that in terms of uh, overall result, it was perhaps our worst game which is saying something in this season. There, there have been lots of games we weren't in. This one, we were farther from not being in. At any point, it, it just Washington came out in what you know could have, should have been a potential trap game and just blew us out like we weren't on the field. And in, in some ways, it was almost more embarrassing what progress we had thought we were seeing under Stanford, we're not seeing. Um, it's just, it's, Obviously, it's it's hard to find anything positive from it. As as Neil said, the, the special teams were terrible. We now know that Schroet can't play in, in the Power Five, at least not with this coaching staff. The defense, again, they try, they really do, but there's just there's just not enough there to do this. And teams can run against us at will, and throw against us almost as much at will. They just picked which one they wanted to beat us with this time. Yeah. And it was running game. Yeah. That's, I don't know, the third or fourth time this year that the opposition had the ball three times and had 21 points, which considering Colors only scored over 21 points once this season, kind of much, pretty much ends the game by early in the second quarter, every game that CU plays. Neil, you, you mentioned, you know, that the players or the coaching staff seems to at least Keep trying, and several of the players actually have been on social media lobbying to keep Mike Sanford as the head coach, other than the fact that the Champion Center would probably be torched to the ground if that happened. Do you have to give at least the interim coaching staff some credit for building loyalty and uh, keeping enthusiasm with the team, barring results on the field notwithstanding? The effort that the players have shown and the work that the coaches have done to try to be innovative, to try to use their talent in new ways, in different ways, to explore some way to get better performance out of their players, commend the coaching staff. I spent some time on the recruiting websites uh, yesterday, and it seems that the incoming class really is on a par with what has been done in the last few years, which considering that the bottom has fallen out of this program over the last two or three years, getting any kind of a quality class in here is a miracle. And you have to think that the coaching staff, especially the interim coach, head coach, have a certain magnetism, a certain credibility, and a certain amount of salesmanship that can get kids to come here when 
we are just a flaming dumpster fire. <laughs> uh, and I, I congratulate the coaching staff, but what, what really would, would attract me to go to, back to Folsom on senior day would just be to stand and pay tribute to those seniors and to all the players that have stuck it out through incredible circumstances over the last few years. And I think this coaching staff has done everything it can to get decent performance out of these kids. And the kids themselves have tried to the limit of their ability. And truly, we can ask nothing more of them. And I respect them. And I'm tipping my cap to them as we speak. Very good. Well, well said. Um, and for those that haven't already seen it, Neil Welk did a, a very nice column this weekend, paying tribute to the seniors and talking about what, all that they've gone through and the, all the coaches they've been through, all the position coaches they've been through, all the trials and turmoils that, uh, again, as Neil said, if nothing else, they deserve to be honored on senior day. Well, Brad, we won't dwell too much longer on the past or the recent past, except for I think we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't at least give a, a report to the class on ESPN game day in Bozeman, Montana, for the Bobcat Grizzly game, the 121st Brawl of the Wild, and Sir Nick Faldo being the guest picker, the recent transplant that has a place up Dry Creek near Bozeman and is apparently all Montanan now. But other than the fact <laughs> that uh, the guest picker for Montana State home game had a very distinct English accent and a knighthood, what were what were your impressions? What is your uh, your uh, field report to the class on the ESPN Game Day in Bozeman, Montana? Well, it was uh, a glorious, if freezing, event. I believe that it started off with the temperature about four below. It did warm up by the time we arrived to approximate zero. But it's a reminder what it's like to be in a crowd of football fans, of college football fans, who are desperately excited for the game who know their team is good, who know their team has a good shot. And the Bobcats, we shall say, openly destroyed the Grizzly. And that was important. But to watch that environment, to see the crowd get excited every time the camera came on. I mean, it's a production. There are cameras everywhere. There's a drone 300 feet in the air tethered to a winch. There are tiny drones whizzing around everywhere you go. There are signs, there are cheerleaders, there is the band. It's a reminder that college football, at its best, at its most enjoyable, is a, it's a group endeavor. It's an exercise in fandom in the best possible way. And it can be so fun and so enjoyable. And that was a great reminder of that, um, of just how much fun you can have at a game when you think you've got a chance. Yeah. Well, it, it was fun being part of that crowd. There were a healthy number of Grizzly fans, but it was very much dominated by the, the Bobcat fans with some very good signs, very clever signs. Some about, you know, I think, you know, it said Yellowstone is not filmed here. Go away. One I liked was uh, Grizz fans eat yellow snow, which of course is good for anyone who lives in a colder climate. And, my personal favorite, I think, was the sign that said, it's not cold enough. So <laughs> it was cold enough. 
It was cold enough for us. It was actually cold enough. (laughs) (laughs) It was an interesting sign of Montana because, of course, there were a number of uh, school jackets and jerseys, but there was a fair number of Carhartt overalls and hunting bib overalls included as well. So people are insulated in very many different ways. Yeah. You know, Brad, that was a great description. Uh, I watched part of it and the spirit up there was incredible. And just to bring that back to CU for a second is that that's something that CU should aspire to do is to someday again host game day and just have that that spirit show up in Boulder. Mm-hmm. Well, it's only been 26 years since ESPN was last in game, you know, game day was in Boulder, but it hopefully won't be 26 more years before they get something like that. But uh, yes, it was fun. And uh, the final score was number three, Montana state 55, number 12, Montana 21. And guess what? It wasn't even that close. So the brawl of the wild or the mauling of the mild, as people around here are liking to call it, the ugly, ugly. Uh, Brad, would you agree now that you've seen the trophy for the great divide, the oh. brawl of the wild trophy? Is that just one of the ugliest trophies that you've ever seen? It is a large pile of bronze, um, uh, <laughs> almost indistinguishable, uh, completely almost te- can't tell what it means. And it takes the entire offensive line to carry the stupid thing. Yes, over 300 pounds it takes to haul that around. So not something you can steal in the middle of the night as a, a frat prank, I would imagine. But getting back to dear old CU, uh, Neil, you referenced a Denver Post article, which is finally getting on board with what discussions we've been having for weeks now about progress towards degree and transfer rules and things like that. And they interviewed, or at least got an email response from CU Chancellor Phil Stefano. And let me just give you a quote and I'll get your reaction to it. It would be inappropriate for me to unilaterally modify academic requirements at the request of a coach, AD, or any university employee. We will continue to be engaged in discussions about removing institutional barriers that will enhance our competitiveness without compromising our values and academic standards. This includes examining methods by which credits from other institutions can be accepted at CU and creating an admissions committee to assist with the evaluation of prospective student athletes' academic readiness. So, do you read anything optimistic into the map, the fact that they're creating a committee to look into it, or are you just looking at Phil Stefano as once again sticking his head in the sand and saying there's no problem here? Well, I spent a little bit of time working in government, and one way to kill an initiative is to study it. And <laughs> when we create a committee to study something, you can just go, okay, scratch that off the list. Now, with regard to the statement itself, it is so amorphous and it's kind of a non-statement statement is that he expressed certain platitudes and the notion of establishing some possible change in the balance in admission standards. But to me, it 
it made no commitment. It gave no outline of what the committee would be charged with, what their rules and what their guidelines would be, what power they would have, who would have final say. And I think Chancellor Stefano is continuing with this magic thinking, this fantasy, that there is a cadre of coaching candidates out there just willing to come to Boulder and coach with one hand and one leg tied together so they really can't function at the same level as their peers. I, I don't anticipate that Chancellor Stefano will be amenable to changing things like PTD, establishing a general studies degree, or fixing the transfer issue so that we're at least on par with schools like UCLA, University of Washington, and other schools that have higher academic ratings perhaps than CU does, including the University of Michigan, Ohio State. If we're gonna play in this league, we have to have the same capabilities, functions, and so on. And if we're not gonna do that, and it certainly seems like we're we're digging our heels in, in terms of change. Um, the future of the program is quite dim. And jumping ahead to a discussion that we're going to have is that I'm not sure it matters who our next coach is going to be. It hasn't mattered for the last 15 years. We've been doing this experiment again and again and again. And if we plot our, lin our wins over time and our rankings over time, uh, I think there's pretty strong evidence that the approach that we've been taking over the last 15 years has not worked. And the only thing it has done is managed to deflate the program and damage its ability to compete. If CU wants to be a power five team, they have to make the changes. They can't study it. They need to do it. Nothing in that statement by the chancellor that gave us a timeline so we can flush another recruit, a recruiting class and transfer portal time coming up right away. So think of next season, uh, we're already lost on that. So further, I say, I say no more. Okay. Well, Brad, I want to get your comment on that and also throw in another quote, this from Gary Barnett, who at least, if not in the inner circle, at least has the ears of uh, the powers that be what everybody's starting to realize is that for 60 or 70 years, the NCAA had kept the playing field almost level in every regard, every measure. Those leveling factors have been removed. And now university presidents can't hide, chancellors can't hide behind field leveling rules. Now each school decides at what level they want to play because it means changing your admission standards and especially now transfer standards. It means determining whether you want to pay kids and how much you want to pay them so that every president, every school now has to decide, okay, at what level do I want to play college football? So based upon the chancellor's comments and comments from folks like Gary Barnett, they're like, well, do you just not care? And apparently the chancellor, his responses were good. Well, I, first of all, Gary is completely right. Now, Gary has always kind of pointed out the anti-athlete sentiment that's present in Boulder. Um, and, re, and he's not completely being honest because he claimed he wasn't playing on a fair 
field. At the time when he was here, he he knew that he was getting uh, beaten by certain teams. They were by certain programs. They just were less upfront about it. I did notice that uh, Gary did not refer to the chancellor. He referred to the president. And I think the fact that even Stefano is even willing to talk about this is only because the fans are raising some trouble. And that is getting finally some traction on it. I mean, we weren't hearing about this last year, not to any great extent. I mean, it was talked about among on the message boards. But this is getting bigger. And again, if CU wants to be, decides to be in a Power Five conference with the financial advantages that come from being in a Power Five conference, including the money that showers down on that, then they're going to have to also decide to play in those leagues um, and kind of quit pretending that we're Stanford. We are not Stanford. We are not Harvard. We are not playing in those leagues. Um, I think Stanford's going to continue to have a hard time being in, in a Power Five conference as well. Um, Cal's going to have to make a decision. USC has made a decision. They're a private school. They'll let anybody in. Yeah, they can throw, run, or catch. And their vaunted admission standards are of no interest to them. And we're going to have to figure out how that works. I don't think that letting a few athletes in means that your academic standards have been destroyed. It's a completely ridiculous concept. And, you know, it uh, maybe it's time for Phil to also acknowledge that opening up and changing some of those transfer standards could also help with a campus that is less than diverse. Excellent point. Um, Stuart, I have a, a quote for you from, I think, that same article. At the very end, it talked about the University of California's chancellor or president that approved a yearly $20.1 million subsidy from the university to the athletic department. Seems like they're willing to take some steps. They probably have the funds that CU does not have, but at least they're willing to make a commitment. And I agree with Brad and I agree with Coach Barnett. CU needs to decide what it's gonna be. The time has come, they can't hide any longer. Well, at least, but like you mentioned that in chances are of this changing between now and, you know, signing day in December or the you know, late signing day in February or even in May when you get the, you know, the people that are mm -hmm. leaving through the transfer portal after spring practices, chances are Steve's going to still have the same restrictions and still be limited in the number of transfers they can even look at, much less attract to the University of Colorado. So if you're at the bottom of the Power Five pecking order to start with, you have a limited number of players that would be even interested in looking at you as a possible transfer. You know, there's some that say, well, I want a chance to play and I know I'm better than what they got on the roster now. So there is that incentive. But if only 20 to 40 percent of those that are even interested can even get into the University of Colorado, you just you have to put you know, everything through the eye of a needle to come up on the other side with the program that has 85 quality power five players. And I am encouraged by the fact that at least the chancellor has acknowledged that other people are interested in why this is a problem. Now, yeah. the fact that he hasn't acknowledged that he's going to do something about it other than perhaps form a committee to think about it and talk about it. And Neil, I think you had a very good 
analogy there that that's going to get us nowhere. But if you want to look at the glasses being half full, that's the only thing you can hang your hat on is at least somebody's knocked on his door, hit his email, sent him memos, gone to meetings and yelled at him and that he's heard it enough times that he at least understands that there is something out there that other people care about. But whether or not that's enough to change anything remains to be seen. I'm not super optimistic, but. Well, and I don't think it's going to change overnight. I mean, the hope, if you want to really hope against hope, we hope that the email is not trickling up to fill, but is running down from the present. Yes. And if that's true, you know, and Phil's ability to remain deaf to the needs of the athletic program or massive. I mean, he is Helen Keller unaware of the needs of the athletic programs. But we can hope that the new president, who has his hands full on many other things, might spare a moment to try to bring drag Phil kicking and screaming and do something approaching the 21st century. Yeah, I was really discouraged by the party said, you know, I can't unilaterally change this. It's like, well, you are unilaterally denying change. So... <laughs> Seems like if you can do something unilaterally, then you can do something unilaterally positive. But yeah, uh, when it happens, we will be excited to give the new head coach the opportunity to actually compete for players. And that's what it all comes down to. It's not recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. It's transfer, transfer, transfer. And yeah. to your point, Brad, I mean, you talk about, I don't think Bo Nix is credits at Auburn had too much trouble transferring to Oregon or Caleb Williams major at Oklahoma fitting into the major system at USC or Michael Penix from going from Indiana to Washington. Somehow that you didn't hear stories about, yes, we would have loved to have this player, but we couldn't get him because our academic standards wouldn't allow us other than a place like Stanford. We've talked about that before that, you know, it's not like David Shaw forgot how to coach. You just can't coach players that can't play. Well, before we devolve too much further into that, we do have a game left. Hard to believe, but yes, Virginia, the season is going to end. Uh, The November from hell will roll into Boulder with the finale against number 14, Utah. I think we'll give the uh, few listeners that we have left interested in previews an abbreviated tips run through, which would, of course, be talent, intangibles, preparation, and stats, because it's going to be, in all likelihood, another game that CU fans are not going to be too excited about. Neil, do you have any interest in Cam Rising? Talking about the uh, All-American tight end that isn't playing because he got injured, and now he has a tight end that's doing really well in Dalton Kincaid? Or tell us what you think about... Uh, Utah Utes coming to to dear old CU and Folsom Field. Um, I listened to part of the radio broadcast, Mark Johnson and Coach Barnett, and they mentioned something about the Pac-12 school that has put the most linemen into the NFL over the last few years is Utah. I'm a big believer that the game is won and lost up front. So in terms of talent, they have an excellent running game. CU has a very poor run defense. So it could be over quickly. 
as you mentioned, their receivers, their tight ends, they just keep rolling these guys out and their tight ends are just terrific. They, they run like wide receivers, but they are mismatches like big, tall tight ends. They're, it's amazing. Rising himself is a good runner, good passer, and they're well coached. They're balanced. They're not top five or top 10 really in anything, or they're not above 100 in anything. They're, their talent is just at every position, I think, but especially in the lines, uh, quite over and above CU. Okay, well, Brad, pick a name. I mean, Brad Cuthy was the tight end All-American that went out now, you know, look for number 86 to get a bunch of passes. That's Dalton Kincaid. He's leading the team. Tight end, as Neil was talking about, 748 yards, seven touchdowns. Tavion Thomas, 687 yards rushing and seven touchdowns. Cam Rising has almost as many yards rushing as Deion Smith. Steve's leading rusher and has six touchdowns, and Deion Smith has two. And I think one number that stuck out to me, the cornerback, they have a sophomore cornerback, Clark Phillips, who has six interceptions this year. CU has a team, has five. <laughs> You're just up and down. So do you want to talk about the uh, exciting how Utah passing game is going to be exceptional? Tavion Thomas and Cameron Rising are going to run all over the field or – Take your pick your poison. What do you want to tell us about? Well, I mean, Cam Rising's coming off probably his worst game of the season. Um, so there's every reason to think that he is going to be the focus of the offense against CU. So I think we will see a uh, a strong mix of Cam Rising throwing. They're not a deep ball team, but then again, we're not a team that can stop people from throwing deep. Um, and you can throw against us all day. And then, then they will run. This is this is a top twenty. This is our seventh top twenty-five offense. Twenty-five offense that CU will face this season. Um, and it's just ridiculous. And and rising is just going to come out and be on his best. There's nothing else to look forward to, and likely will throw for two fifty and run for one hundred and seventy because he's more talented than anybody we have on our team. And as Neil has pointed out, the, the big guys in front of him are there to play for him. So I think what you're going to see is what you always expect to see from Utah under Kyle Winningham, a very balanced, grinded-out offense, and a defense that's just going to make you make plays on a regular basis. And that's who he's recruited. Guys who are in there are tough. They rotate a lot. Their top-end talent probably doesn't compare to folks like Oregon, but everybody they got plays what they want. And um, that's how they win a lot of games. And there's just no reason to think that that talent's not going to show up on uh, Saturday in Boulder. Okay. Well, Neil, there's potentially, again, not a letdown to the point of CU being competitive, but it has to be a letdown for Utah having come off the loss to Oregon a 20 to 17 game Saturday night late that they really could have won. The play calling at the end was kind of questionable as far as how they were trying to drive down the field and keep the ball uh, ahead of the chains. The scenarios, Utah's not eliminated from defending for the Pac-12 title, but it it takes a lot for Utah 
they have to beat CU, okay? But Washington has to beat Washington State. Oregon State has to beat Oregon, and UCLA has to beat Cal. So that's not impossible. You think I mean, UCLA is certainly going to be favored. Washington is favored on the road in the Apple Cup against Washington State, and Oregon State is at home against Oregon. So there is a chance that Utah will get a chance to defend its Pac-12 title against USC, uh, who is already in, but there's a lot that has to happen and a lot of things have to fall. So pretty much Utah, if not eliminated at least, might not have as much to play for on Saturday as they would have if they had pulled out the upset or got the victory in Eugene against Oregon. So anything we can hang our hat on as Buff fans that uh, the youth just want to keep everybody healthy for their bowl game and get to watching the TV and start praying for other teams to win and they'll just sleepwalk their way to 30 or 35 points instead of 45 to 50. I, I do think that Utah is probably going to come out and play well and play hard. They're, they're just too well coached and too talented um, to not play well, but they do have incentive if not necessarily to play for the championship, perhaps put themselves in line for a top tier bowl. If USC is able to go through uh, to the playoffs there might be some chance that Utah could get another Rose Bowl berth. At the very least, they're going to be in the Pac-12's second bowl, which is the, the one in San Antonio. And I, I do think that Utah just respects itself enough that they're not going to let down. They may be disappointed about their last game, but I just think they're too classy to let it beat them twice. Okay. Well, Brad, anything – you want to talk about the rest of the game in terms of the, you know, it's obviously CU's last game, senior day, any stats that jump out to you, anything about this game that you still want to talk about before we, uh, you know, <laughs> acknowledge the fact that CU is a, once again, almost a 30 point underdog. I mean, it, it's, it's difficult to say what's going to be. I, you would think, as a matter of fact, I do think that, the team's going to come out that they're going to play hard. Um, Sanford and his entire staff are auditioning for whatever their next jobs are. Some of these players are probably auditioning for their next teams. Um, we'll see about how the hiring goes and whether or not we can keep our talent. And there is a pride in playing at home. It's going to be fine weather, good football weather. And so I think, again, I think there is a chance that this team can play tough, I think they will probably – I don't know that Oregon's all that incentivized to score 50 or 60. So it could be a somewhat lower-scoring game. Uh, as I said, Utah would like to just grind this out and go home. Um, so if you were betting anything, bet the under for time. <laughs> <laughs> get done before sunset. Two o'clock yeah, kickoff. Get, get done before – get home before midnight. You know, they got to be happy that they don't have a night game that they can – Hour, hour and a half flight back to, to Salt Lake City. They could be home for dinner or a late dinner anyway. Yeah, uh, I, I just I think this is going to be wrapped up pretty quick with a lot of running. It will depend on how many, you know, the, the JT Shroud completion percentage just continues to be so egregiously bad. And I hate to knock the kid. He really, you can see the effort, and that's part of the problem. But he's... um 
you know, he's getting down to about a 40% completion rate. And that's, that's, that's not power five. That's not swack quality quarterbacking. And, you know, we just, we get so far behind. There's so many three and outs. And then Utah is just going to grind those through us. So that's my concern is that there is just our continuing inefficiency is going to be uh, the death of us in a game against a team who makes their living on efficiency. Yeah. So Neil, you withhold any stats till the end or anything else you want to comment on as far as the, the Utah Utes against the Colorado Buffaloes? Well, I, I have a, a prep comment and a stat comment, if I may. Yes, please. Uh, the prep thing is CU plays a lot of zone pass defense. And they have to play that because they can't cover man-to-man. With a good tight end, such as Utah has, that is a, a formula for passing success because a good tight end finds the soft spot in the zone, sits down, and passes completed for a first down. Or they run a nice seam route that is good for 25 yards, if not more. So watch for that. And I think that that's going to complement Utah's running game. I don't know how CU is going to counter that. In terms of stats, I think that Utah's running game is somewhere around 10 to 15 in the nation. Uh, CU's run defense, of course, is dead last at 131st. That's the stat I think that's going to really explain the whole game. And yeah. in terms of the bets that Brad mentioned, and Brad, thank you for uh, the comment earlier that made me think about this matchup thing, is that I think Utah, again, it's one of those situations of just when do they want to take their foot off the, uh, off the gas, right? And I think we can count on CU to score maybe 10, 13 tops. Uh, I just can't see them getting past that. And Utah will probably have its second team in by early fourth quarter. And I think that that's probably going to be good for another 10 points for Utah. So it's probably going to be somewhere 48 to 10. Okay. Well, we moved right into predictions. So Neil's got the, the Utes covering the 29 point spread at 48 to 10. Brad, how do you see the, the score unfolding? Again, I think, that CU has something to play for. I think Utah has no reason to just inherently run it up. I think they'll run it up based on talent, skill, and uh, coaching. So uh, I'd like, I'll, I'll reach out and go 42 42-17? <laughs> I, I think hopefully CU, I think CU hopefully will run the ball a bit better. Okay, so you've got CU covering in the final game of the season. I have that prediction of whether or not I will have that bet is a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, nobody had betting their own money would put anything on C winning this game, but you know, just a question of whether or not it gets really ugly and whether Kyle Whittingham wants to get out of Dodge or how many fans are left in the stands come five o'clock on Saturday afternoon, because it will probably thin out pretty quickly, I would imagine, because the students aren't there. Uh, they're already gone for Thanksgiving and everything like that. So it uh, will be kind of a partial sellout 
as they say, uh, used to say in the good old days that, you know, Colorado will have a lot of fans that are staying home or coming disguised as empty seats. So it is what it is. It's the finale for one of the worst seasons in Colorado football. And maybe the Buffs will surprise us. Maybe the Buffs will get over 20 points. But for Colorado to get a win would be something that you'd have to actually have to get a copy of the tape and make sure that CU wasn't allowed to have 15 players on the field for every play. But thank you, gentlemen, for another hardworking season on your part of See You at the Game podcast. We will get get together very soon uh, when we start talking about either the new head coach or we will talk about coaching candidates. Already kind of doing a deep dive. I didn't know. Did you guys know that Bronco Mendenhall's been hanging out in Big Fork, Montana this past year? <laughs> so, uh, you know, if Nick Faldo can be a Montana State guy, then why can't Bronco Mendenhall be a be a buff? And Tom Herman is a member of Mensa. So you got that going for you. And I found out that Deion Sanders has played for played for as many NFL teams as he did Major League Baseball teams. He played for five NFL teams and five major league baseball teams in his professional career. So things you didn't know that you didn't know when you start looking at uh, weird stuff, but we will either talk about candidates next time, or we will talk about CU's new head coach and the prospects for the 2023 season. So thank you for being with us every week. It's uh it's been a hardship to endure the 2022 season, but we remain steadfast Buff fans, and I thank you for your time. Take care, Stu, and go Buffs. Brad Stewart, it's been a great pleasure. I'm flattered to be in your company. Thank you. Neil, you've contributed a vast amount. I am better educated for having listened to you. Howdy. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening and being here through one of the worst seasons in Colorado football history. You know I mean it sincerely when I thank you for sticking with us all year. If you happen to be a first-time listener, be sure to check out my written tips for the game, my written preview. They're always posted on Wednesday mornings during the regular season at the See You at the Game website. Please subscribe to the podcast because at this point we don't know when we're going to be back on the air. Not because we don't want to, but we don't know when the new head coach is going to be named. We will either be back with a list of candidates or discussion about the new coach. So please subscribe so you don't miss out on the next episode. We have partnered with Mile High Sports and are proud to be part of their podcast network. As always, you can find the See What the Game podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and other podcast sites. Now, if you happen to be someone who doesn't like to download podcasts, all of the episodes can be listened to at the See You at the Game website. We will be back soon. Not sure when, but we will be talking about CU coaches, and I hope you'll be with us. Until then, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. 
If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to seeyouatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.